turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking this morning at a text out of Romans chapter 8, one that is uh, often skipped, and not uh, out of intentionality, but it is often overlooked because of the great words that follow the text that we will be studying this morning. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. And as I said, often the, the words that come after that particular text are the ones we gravitate toward, and I'll read those in just a moment. But before we get into this text and its context, I do want to remind you of, of the whole purpose of the book of Romans, that if we would summarize all of the contents of the book of Romans in one word, it would be the word righteousness. Righteousness. In fact, if we look even at those very well-known theme verses in the beginning of Romans, Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 16 and 17, we would read that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. And as Paul then builds upon that theme of the revelation of God's righteousness, if we would take the time to look through the book of Romans, we'd see that in chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, that first major section of this letter to the Romans, Paul deals with the the problem of man's lack of righteousness. Man is the exact opposite of righteousness. And so he stands condemned. And so Paul, in those, the, the final verses of that section in uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and following, we have that very important statement of the depravity of man. There's no one righteous, not even one. And then beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, to the end of chapter 5, Paul moves to the second main section of this this topic of righteousness, the provision of righteousness in light of its absence in us. And so Romans chapter 3 verse 21 to chapter 5 verse 21 deals with the issue of justification, how God makes us righteous. That on the basis of the work that Jesus Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection, in his life and in his death, That on that basis, God takes our sin and places that upon Jesus Christ, imputes our unrighteousness to Christ, and takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and imputes it to us, thereby declaring us righteous. And then the third main section of the book is from chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 6, to the end of chapter 8. And it has to do with the demonstration of this righteousness. We who were once unrighteous, who were then declared as an act of of declaration, a legal declaration, we were declared righteous. Now in this life of, of the gospel, we now begin to live out the righteousness that was imputed to us, and that is what we call sanctification. And so in chapter 6 to chapter 8 of Romans, Paul spends his time, his focus, dealing with how righteousness becomes more and more of our lives as Christians, of those who've been declared righteous, in our practical lives, in our, in our behavior, in our relationships, in our resistance of temptation, and, 
in our putting on of, of godliness. And the text that we are looking at really comes at the end of that section on, on sanctification as the Apostle Paul is dealing with uh, the, the, the practical nature of the Christian life. The lives of those who have been declared righteous and now are waiting for something that is going to come in the future. This thing we call glorification. So really Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, this third major section of this letter to the Romans, Paul is dealing with this period of life in the Christian's life, the period that begins with the declaration of righteousness and that concludes with that final aspect of salvation, glorification. When all of us, not just our, our status, but our, our behavior and everything about us will be finally righteous in essence. Not just in declaration, but in essence. Paul deals with this period of the believer's life from justification to glorification. It's this period we call sanctification. It's this period where we've been, we've been declared righteous. We already enjoy all the privileges that come from that, but yet we still don't experience righteousness in perfection. So Romans 6, 7, and 8 deal with that as, as, as Paul speaks much in these verses about the struggle, about the fight, about the trials, about the suffering. And this text that we're going to look at this morning is so helpful in that regard. It's Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 27. And I want to read in, in, in particular verses 18 to 30. It's, the, it's this key section, this paragraph that, that summarizes the struggle that we find ourselves in having been justified but awaiting glorification. Romans 8 verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willfully, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, the verses we're going to look at are verses 26 and 27, what amounts to be a, a very significant sentence, very complex sentence, as the apostle deals with the issue of suffering in this period of life for the Christian between the declaration of justification and that final moment of glorification. Paul here is dealing with this experience of life, this, this period of time with which all believers must struggle and and he in, he raises this issue of of suffering here in this context for example in verse 18 he says i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us this kind of suffering is not the suffering of persecution that paul has in mind here he's he's not talking about suffering that might come as a result of of our testimony before a world of unrighteousness, Paul's talking about something much more inherent within us, something that is much more pervasive than that momentary affliction that might come from unbelievers. He's talking about living in this world under the effects of the curse, living as a saint, as a justified one, in a world of decay, and even in a body of decay. And this decay is the daily suffering that all of us face when we know that this world isn't the way it ought to be. Our bodies don't function the way they ought to function. And we ourselves find, uh, find this constant struggle battling with temptation And constantly finding more in our lives that we must uproot, that we must put to death. It's a a period of suffering. It's, It's a challenging period as we feel the consequences of sin in the world around us externally and also in ourselves. And as Paul deals with this issue, he wants to encourage us by focusing on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And his focus has been on the ministry of the Holy Spirit really throughout chapter 6, 7, and 8. But it really comes to a climax here in verses 26 and 27 as he he explains to the Roman church, as he explains to, to us how the Spirit is involved as we experience suffering due to the effects of sin and the curse and temptation in our lives. And what we're going to see this, this morning as we look at these two verses are the instructions that Paul gives regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit in light of our suffering. He gives this to encourage us as we wait for future glorification. This is very important because this is what helps us get through to the end. We need to be aware of this. And so these are the, the three instructions that we're going to see in this text, verses 26 and 27, Three instructions on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The first one is this. Remember your persistent poverty. Remember your persistent poverty. We're going to see this in the middle 
of verse 26. Our poverty. Remember it. And, and you might say, well, that's not very encouraging to reflect upon weakness. But actually, there is something encouraging about it. And we're, we're going to deal with that when we look at that. Remember your persistent poverty. Middle of verse 26. Secondly, recognize your personal helper. Your personal helper. And this is going to be found at the beginning of verse 26 and at the end of verse 26. Remember your personal helper. And then thirdly, rejoice in his perfect intercession. Verse 27. Rejoice in his perfect intercession. Remember your persistent poverty. Recognize your personal helper and rejoice in his perfect intercession. Let's look at the first of these. Remember your persistent poverty. Notice the middle of verse 26. He begins and he says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. Right in the middle of this verse, Paul reflects upon and and reminds us of this persistent poverty. He describes it as weakness, and then he describes it as ignorance. And by doing this, he gives us two things to remember about our poverty. There's a general reality of our poverty, and there's a more specific one. And the general one is this. We are marked by a fundamental Weakness. He uses that term weakness. And notice, first of all, that Paul includes himself in this. He's not just saying to the Roman believers, oh, you have a weakness, you're less mature than I am, and your immaturity is marked by weakness. No, he uses the, the plural first person pronoun here, our weakness. He helps in our weakness. Paul is including himself in this description. It is our weakness. And this term weakness is a generic term. He's not focusing on something in particular. He also doesn't use the plural here, weaknesses, as if we can maybe put them in categories. He uses the singular to emphasize that this is a a persistent and general category, a broad term. Not limited to a particular set of issues, but it describes us in really in totality in our experience. We don't just have weaknesses. Paul says we're weak. We are weak. And, and this weakness, again, isn't related to just uh, you know, the, 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 the limitation on some of the things we would like to do and can't, it takes us back even to verse 18. I read that before. It, it relates to the suffering, and that suffering doesn't have to do with persecution. It has to do with our, our experience in, in this sin-cursed world, in this body that is still awaiting redemption. We suffer in this age because we are weak. We suffer in this body because we live in this world that is fundamentally broken. We're not immune from those consequences. We are weak because our bodies themselves are decaying. Our our bodies are still susceptible to temptation. We are weak because we live in a world subjected to futility and corruption It's a world of vanities, Solomon said. 
And we cry out like the Apostle Paul did just at the end of chapter 7 when he said, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And, And for the true Christian, we can echo those words daily. Who will set me free from all these imperfections that I still experience? I, I've come to know the, the righteousness of God in the gospel. I've come to know it in truth. I've been declared righteous, and that's what my heart longs for, but I'm not there yet. Who will rescue me? And it's that cry that all true believers face. This world, and even the Christian life, isn't utopia. It's not paradise. It's one marked by weakness. Because our best life is not now. It's still yet to come. And our, as Paul said, we eagerly hope for it, but we're not there yet. We can't stop and say, well, I'm just happy here. No, if we truly long for the kind of glorification that Paul explains, there will be a kind of discontentment with this life. Not discontentment with what God gives us, but a realization that this is not what we were created to be ultimately, and this is not what we were recreated to be. We were recreated to resemble in in, in perfection the image of Jesus Christ, and we're not there yet, and that leads to this status of weakness. And ironically, this is comforting, I think. I hope, because often we hear in this world the kind of counsel that Job's friends gave to him that we shouldn't experience suffering. We shouldn't experience weakness. And so sometimes that can lead to this idea that if I have this this challenge, this weariness about The ongoing fight I have to fight against sin, it just seems everywhere, every day. You wake up in the morning and it's there and, and you begin to wonder, am I really saved? If I'm saved, I shouldn't struggle. Sometimes you... You think that, but Paul is saying here, and he's saying this of himself, that no, this is the life in which we live between justification and glorification. Remember this, and this is this general weakness that he reminds us of. And then he moves to a more specific kind of poverty. He says the Spirit helps our weakness. And then he says immediately after that, for we do not know how to pray as we should. We do not know how to pray as we should. Here's the more specific one that, that, that we find ourselves in, especially in the spiritual sense. If there's one way where we can gauge our weakness, it's, it's in our prayer life. You just ask anybody, you know, how's your prayer life going? And that immediately humbles us. But what's, what's important to note here is, is what Paul is saying. He says, for we do not know how to pray as we should. Now, if you have the NASB, um, that's what you read. We do not know how to pray. And, and the idea by the translation there suggests that we don't know the manner of praying. Do we stand when we pray? Uh, do we kneel when we pray? Do we sit when we pray? Uh, do we pray with arms outstretched? Do we pray with eyes closed? But really the, the, the language of Paul here isn't emphasizing the manner of praying. He's not saying we do not know how to pray in the sense of our manner. 
It is here where the ESV, the English Standard, translate this difficult phrase a little bit better. The ESV translates it this way. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. That is, that is, that is a, a good translation. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Literally, we could translate it this way, but it's cumbersome. For the what we should pray for according to need, we do not know. For the what we should pray for according to need, we do not know. What Paul is emphasizing here is the content of prayer, not the manner of prayer, the content of of prayer. We do not know what to pray for. And Paul is speaking of this in light of our weakness. Now you might say, well, surely the scriptures teach us the what we must pray for. Right? We could look at the examples of prayer in in the scriptures, we could look, for example, at the prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, a ma- magnificent model prayer. We could look at the prayers of the psalmist. Uh, we could look at Jesus' model for praying that he gave the disciples in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We could look at Paul's own prayers in Ephesians and Colossians and Thessalonians and say, here are models of praying, and, and certainly that is the case. So, why does Paul say here that the content of our praying we do not know how to pray? For the what we should pray, we do not know. Why does he emphasize that? Well, it is here where Paul gets very specific in the weakness. It's related to that weakness that in the midst of our weaknesses, And in the midst of our general state of weakness, as we struggle in this world over very practical things, it's at that point where we often do not know what we should pray for. That as we face the challenges of declining physical health, as we see uh, the temptations constantly fill our minds, and as we face all the the various kinds of futility and corruption in this world, how, how do we pray? How must we pray in that context? And and Paul himself gives us a very good illustration of this. Remember his words in Second Corinthians chapter twelve. Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verses seven to ten. The language is so similar that you cannot help but draw this comparison and this illustration in Paul's own life. You remember the thorn in his flesh? And we don't know exactly what that thorn was. Probably a particular individual who was causing Paul problems. But he calls it a thorn in the flesh. The identity is not important to us. And this is what Paul said. Concerning this, this thorn in the flesh, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Undoubtedly, there's a a connection here as Paul recognizes his own weakness. And, And Paul 
could, could admit that in light of the thorn in the flesh, he, didn't know, he did not know what to pray for. In fact, he began to pray that the Lord would remove it. And that actually was not the right prayer. Because the Lord said, no, I will not. Because my power is perfected in your weakness. And this is what Paul is getting at here, that in the midst of our weakness... We are ignorant. We don't know the bigger plan of things. And, and because of that, that casts a, a questioning, a, a, a doubt upon what our prayers should be filled with, with respect to our own thorns in the flesh. How do we pray about this physical illness? How do we pray about this challenge, this trial, whatever it may be? How do I pray? And Paul says, we do not know how, in the sense of we do not know What? So we must acknowledge this. We have a a general weakness and a very specific ignorance. We must remember our persistent poverty. But in case this leads you to discouragement, we move to the next exhortation, and it's this. Recognize your personal helper. Recognize your personal helper. And this is found at the beginning of verse 26 and at the end of verse 26 Paul says this in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And in, this, in these words as well, we see two aspects about this personal helper. Again, another general one and then a specific one. First of all, the general one related to our general weakness is expressed at the very beginning of verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. This is a, a very fascinating verb that we find here. The verb helps. In fact, in the English language, this verb seems somewhat mundane. You probably even used it within the last 24 hours. Help me or help him or help her or some kind of use of that verb. But in the Greek language, this verb is actually very, very unusual. And whenever you come across unusual words in, 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 in the, the biblical languages, you know that it's that way for a reason. There's emphasis on it. And this very rare word is actually made up of three words that Paul places together and creates a new word. And it basically means this. These three words mean this. To hold on behalf of and together with. Paul takes three Greek words that would mean those things and puts them all together. To hold, on behalf of, and together with. And he uses that to describe what the Spirit does in light of our weakness. He holds on our behalf together with us. This is what the Spirit does. We are weak, we suffer, we groan under the weight of life in this fallen world. But Paul says, we have a helper, we are not alone. He comes to help us. He comes to hold the weakness in our weakness. He comes and on our behalf, he holds it. And together with us, he holds it. And notice, he doesn't remove it. He doesn't remove it. He is the burden bearer who carries us together with our burden all the way to final glorification. 
And that's not only what he does. It's, you could liken it to, to, to a, a, a father or mother coming alongside a young child with a backpack full of stones and all the other kind of things the kids collect. And too heavy. Can't carry it. And the spirit comes alongside of us like a parent does and doesn't take the backpack off the child but lifts it enough so the child can walk. And get to the destination. That is what the Spirit does. But he does not just do that. There is a more specific thing that he does. Notice the end of verse 26. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So in light of our general weakness, the Spirit helps us. And in light of our specific ignorance, the Spirit intercedes for us. Here's the second thing that the Spirit does. And it's this more specific thing in response to our ignorance. He himself, the Spirit himself, intercedes for us to, uh, intercedes with us, for us with groanings too deep for words. Now this is another very fascinating Description of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives, in his activity in us, in this period of life between justification and glorification. And Paul, again, uses a very rare word here to describe the Spirit's ministry of intercession. Now, this verb intercession is found elsewhere uh, in, in the New Testament, usually of Jesus Christ. So, in fact, we could go to... to uh, To to Romans chapter 8, verse 34, just a few verses later, notice this. Just a few verses later, we read of Jesus Christ. Is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And and we commonly focus on that. We we have this understanding of Jesus as our great high priest, Hebrews chapter 7 Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. We won't. But the, the, the ministry of a great high priest, Jesus, at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Well, Paul takes that verb that's found there in Romans 8, verse 34, and in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and he adds another word to it to make it more intensive. As if to say that whatever Jesus does at the right hand of the Father, the Spirit is doing even more intensely. But there's a difference. Whereas Jesus, the great high priest, intercedes for us to the Father in heaven, the Spirit is doing His work in us. And the meaning of this verb means to meet in on behalf of. And it's this idea that, that there is someone who, who has all the power and resources needed. There is another party who has nothing. And how can the two be brought together? Well, the intercessor is the one who meets both parties, who is uniquely fit to operate between them. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. He, he meets, he brings us and the Father together in our context and on our behalf. He operates specifically with our interests in mind, our best interests. This is what the Spirit does. And notice how he is described. He is described as doing this with groanings too deep for words. Now, this is not some charismatic tongue gibberish. The words and descriptions that Paul gives here specifically states, 
It's too deep for words. It's inaudible. That's what Paul is saying. You can't hear these groanings. This is special communication, heavenly, divine communication that you never hear, but you must be encouraged by this because this is exactly what the Spirit is doing for you as a believer. He is doing this work in you. He is interceding to the Father for you on your behalf, and he's doing it with these groanings, these words that are too deep to be audible. This is a special kind of language. And it's what the Spirit does for us 24-7. Even when we are completely out of tune and out of touch with that reality as believers. We can live so many hours of our day just completely oblivious to it. And we have to be so thankful that his intercession isn't based on our awareness of it. God has committed to us the Holy Spirit who abides in us. And he just does this ministry on our behalf, interceding for us. One commentator said this, The Spirit loves the saints so exceedingly that he yearns for that great day when delivered from every speck of sin, they will glorify God forever and ever in the perfection of holiness and joy. The Spirit yearns for us and longs that we would be brought to glorification so that we would be truly in the image of the Son and experience all the blessings of that wonderful inheritance to the glory of God. Paul wants the believers to remember that. So remember your persistent poverty. Recognize this personal Helper, And then thirdly, finally, verse 27, rejoice in his perfect intercession. Rejoice in his perfect intercession. Verse 27 says this, And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We have several pronouns used here, and we have to identify them properly. The first one is at the beginning of verse 27, he who searches the hearts. The he there refers to God the Father. He is called the, the great searcher. The, the one who searches hearts. It emphasizes divine omniscience. He just knows. He knows the state of the heart. He knows exactly what is going on, all of your motives and intentions. He doesn't need words from you to know that. He knows. And on the one hand, this is utterly frightening. God is the one with whom we have to do. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, There is no creature that is hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And when he looks at us, he does see poverty. When he looks at us, he does see the weakness. But he does not turn his gaze away. Look again at the verse. He searches the hearts But he knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he, that is the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will 
of God. Now, that is an amazing statement. We've, we say it often that we know that our prayers will be answered in the affirmative when we pray according to the will of God. Right? That's a very important rule of prayer that we cannot expect positive answers from God when we pray against the will of God. We cannot expect that God will say yes to anything that is contrary to his character and his purposes. And that is why a true growing prayer life will go hand in hand with a deepening knowledge of the will of God revealed in scripture. And that as we know the will of God revealed in scripture, we will pray more and more accordingly and we will have greater and greater confidence that our prayers will ultimately be answered. But it gets a lot more difficult when it is about things about which God has not revealed his will. The trials and the sufferings. What do they have in store for you? What are the specifics? And and those things we do not know. God has not included a chapter or a book of the Bible addressed specifically to you and all the struggles that you're facing. And so for us, we don't know exactly how to pray according to the will of God. What is God's will for me in this illness, in this lack of employment? In this trial that I'm facing, what is God's will? How do I pray? I don't know. But the Spirit, notice what He does. He intercedes. He prays for the saints, the ones who have been declared just. He prays for them. And notice how this intercession, how this prayer is done. The end of verse 27. He prays exactly according to the will of God. Exactly, literally, according to God. This is what the Spirit does. Even though we do not know what to pray for, the Spirit knows exactly what to pray for. And He prays exactly according to the will of God. And because of that, you can be assured that His intercession that He does for you 24-7 with groanings that you cannot even hear, He is doing perfectly and it will receive from the throne room of God a resounding, yes, I will do that. I will do it. The Father always listens to the Spirit. And the Spirit always knows the will of the Father. And He prays exactly what needs to be prayed. And it is answered always in the affirmative. You might say, well, do we have any hint about what that looks like? The answer is yes. Because we cannot disconnect this from the words that follow. And like I said before, we always know the words that follow. These are words that you'll have on you know, your mantle of a fireplace or go into Hobby Lobby and you may even see these words on a poster. Verse 28. And we know that God, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. The intercession of the Spirit has everything to do with causing all of that weakness, all of those trials to work out for your inherent good. 
And that good is ultimately expressed in these synonymous ideas of being glorified and being ultimately conformed to the image of Jesus. This is what the Spirit is doing in your life even today. Unknown to you. Out of love. This is what the Spirit is doing if you are a true believer. He is praying for you. There is a communication taking place you don't know. A language you don't know. But the Spirit is praying for your specific needs. That this would all work out for good. And he's praying exactly in the language that the Father desires. Exactly according to the Father's will. And the Father is saying, yes, Yes, yes. And it's ultimately that ministry of the Spirit that encourages us to know one day it'll be over. The weakness will be turned to strength. And the challenges of this present life will be turned into utopia, perfection. As we are ultimately conformed to the image of Jesus, never again to have to struggle and suffer. This is the wonderful encouragement of this text. Paul wanted these Roman believers to know it. And as we close our time, let me give you a few final exhortations. First of all, be patient. Be patient. Don't think that God has lost control of your life. Even though you don't know what is all going on, know that there's a whole different realm and everything's under control. And the Spirit is interceding for you, and the Father is listening and answering every single prayer in the affirmative. Don't don't become impatient. Be patient. Secondly, be realistic. Don't be disappointed in in your prayers because you know that ultimately you, you struggle with knowing how you should be praying, what you should be praying for, and sometimes that desire for perfection in praying can keep you from praying. And, and the encouragement here is, you know, just pray. Just pray. And the Spirit's the one who's doing the perfect praying. And that's what's most encouraging. And you and your weakness, just pray as you can. But no, it's not your praying that's going to get you through to the end. It's His praying. And it's perfect. Third, be humble. Be humble. Don't think you know the best path to glorification. The Father and the Spirit do. They know. So be humble and teachable and receive these trials and struggles with joy and confidence. And finally, be thankful. Be thankful for the Spirit's ministry in your life. And I would just close with these words. If you're here and you are not a believer, what I've just said does not apply to you. The Spirit is not at work in your life. And so your responsibility this morning is not to try to pray better or even to try to somehow harness the power of the Spirit. Your responsibility is to get right with Jesus Christ. You have a problem with unrighteousness. You have a problem with condemnation. And so for you, the challenge is 
to grasp hold of Jesus Christ and his righteousness by faith. And it's then when this will apply to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you acknowledging this weakness. That even this prayer that I give is imperfect. And those who join me here this morning in prayer, that's imperfect as well. But we thank you that the real praying is going on in a different dimension. And it's that praying which is perfect. And it's that praying which has a guaranteed positive result. We thank you for the righteousness that is ours in Christ that we enjoy already by virtue of that declaration that we are now just. That our sins were imputed to Jesus Christ and he bore them on the cross. And his righteousness was imputed to us. And now we enjoy privileges as your sons and daughters. And we thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who gives us that seal of redemption, that guarantee that we will be glorified. The suffering, the weakness will be done away. And we thank you for that and eagerly long for it in humility, in contentment, and yet with anticipation. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.